Well, if you happen to be in middle school or older, you were probably assigned at some point to read Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, uh, those great works. The Odyssey tells an epic story of Odysseus. He was a respected warrior and he's on his return homeward from the Trojan War, attempting to get back to the island of Ithaca. And the journey is filled with much difficulties. At one point in the journey, he's warned by the goddess Circe concerning the dangers that he will encounter from the sirens. The sirens are two monsters who present themselves as beautiful women with amazing voices. And so they sing. And when they sing, there is great appeal to the passing sailors who will be unable to resist their allure. These aren't actually beautiful women. They are monsters who want the soldiers to come near to the island so that their ships are dashed upon the rocks and destroyed. The sweet-sounding song that enchants the sailors actually leads to their death. And so as the story goes, the ship nears the island of the Sirens and Odysseus sees the sloping meadows and he sees them looking golden in the sun. The island itself was beautiful. The crew wanted to head for the island and Odysseus responds to them by saying this. That is the island of the Sirens. Circe warned me to steer clear of it for the Sirens are beautiful but deadly. They sit beside the ocean, combing their long golden hair and singing to passing sailors, but anyone who hears their song is bewitched by its sweetness. And they are drawn to that island like iron to a magnet. Circe warned them ahead of time, and she gave Odysseus a simple plan for what to do when they encountered the island and the sirens. Circe said, I'm going to give you a, a large supply of beeswax. And what you need to do is, is divide that up into little portions so everyone can soften it up, you and the sailors, and you can put it in your ears so that when you go by the island, you'll be able to see the sirens, but you won't hear their enchanting songs. And so Odysseus took the beeswax, he allotted it to all of the men, and they softened the wax and they put it in their ears. But Odysseus wanted to hear the song. And so he said, here's the plan, guys. Strap me to the mast of the ship. And whatever I tell you, when I tell you to untie me, don't do it, okay? Don't listen to me. And so as they neared the island, the men put the beeswax in their ears. They strapped Odysseus to the mast. And as they began to row past the island, the magical song of the sirens floated out over the summertime waters. And here's what they sang. Odysseus, bravest of heroes, draw near to us on our green island. Odysseus, we'll teach you wisdom, we'll give you love sweeter than honey. The songs we sing soothe away sorrow, and in our arms you'll be happy. Odysseus, bravest of heroes, the songs we sing will bring you peace. The song appealed to every sense in the flesh. It promised every possible desire that a man could have. And so enchanted, Odysseus, of course, tries to jump to the shore to swim to the island. Uh, he even in his struggle begins to have the cords cut into his flesh. He strains so hard, he urges the men to untie them. They can't hear him, so they just keep tightening him down. And yet the, the significant takeaway from that story happens at the end when you reflect back on the experience and you find that when Odysseus heard the song and looked at the sirens, what he saw were beautiful and desirable women. And yet for all of the sailors, when they looked to the shore, what they saw were hungry monsters with vicious, crooked claws. See, because the men were not under the enchanting spell, they saw things as they really were. They saw right through the temptation. They saw reality appropriately. Odysseus was drawn to the island 
just as hearsay had warned, like a piece of iron drawn toward a magnet. How about the sailors? Well, they were impervious. They were like how a piece of plastic is drawn to a magnet. doesn't really work. There's no magnetic attraction. And so all of them were preserved based upon following the plan and the equipping given them by Circe. And I thought as encountering this text, what an apt illustration of the strength of temptation to the human heart. You know the power of temptation. You know the alluring attraction. You know that even though sin never delivers what it promises, it's still enticing and there's a part of you that's attracted to it nonetheless. That part of you that is drawn to sin like iron to a magnet. This also illustrates the deadly nature of giving in to temptation and the inability of us as mortals to face temptation without assistance. Truth of the matter is that in temptation, you and I need help. Temptation is overpowering without the resources that we have in Christ. And today is all about understanding the help that Jesus provides you in your temptation. All about the the help that Jesus himself provides you in your temptation to sin. Last week we saw Jesus taking on flesh to minister to us as our self-sacrificing high priest. We saw particular ways that he serves us and it was uh, overwhelming to think of God not simply being served by his creatures, but actually condescending to serve us as our high priest. We saw in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Jesus bringing comfort to us by abolishing the fear of death. The fact that in Christ, you no longer have to fear the tyranny of death, that that's actually now the gateway into being with Christ. We saw in verses 16 and 17 that Jesus ministers comfort to us because he's paid the penalty for our sins. He has atoned for all of them. And there is no sacrifice for sin needed. Nothing remains if you are in Christ to be paid for. Well, the next ministry of Jesus as high priest comes in verse 18. And it is this, that Jesus ministers comfort in coming to our aid in our weakness, and in particular in our struggle with sin. This morning's message is entitled, Jesus Truly Tempted. We oftentimes don't think about the temptation of Christ It appears in only a small handful of passages in the New Testament. And yet the theology that we're going to encounter today is is deeply significant for how you face and deal with temptation in your life. Truly, I don't know any Christian who hasn't dealt with discouragement or weariness when it comes to dealing with sin in their lives. You could just show a show of hands. Is anyone not sick of dealing with sin in their lives? I don't know a single believer that says, yeah, I'm just, I'm not, I'm unconcerned when it comes to dealing with sin. And oftentimes if we get discouraged in our battle with sin, uh, we, we come up with some way of dealing with it that is not most beneficial. Today is going to focus on one area of sanctification and it is specifically relating to the temptation to sin. The truth that we're going to encounter here is is actually one of my favorite doctrines in Scripture. I still remember the first time I learned it, just being blown away by it. It was one of those where when you hear it, uh, you're kind of wrecked for a couple of weeks just beginning to contemplate all of the places that this particular teaching applies. And here is the essence of it. Jesus resisted temptation as a man. And he is now qualified and ready to help mankind in their temptation. Jesus resisted temptation as a man, and he is now qualified and ready to help mankind in their temptation. This doctrine doesn't get a lot of airtime because it doesn't appear very often in Scripture. And yet the places here in Hebrews, there's going to be a couple other times that we see this before we get to the end of the letter, provides 
a little window into the life of Christ while he was on this earth. This morning, we're going to dive into very deep theological waters. So I would say, take a breath, a deep breath, and prepare for that. But I promise you that it is worth it. This study is worth it because you're going to see Jesus portrayed in a way that is so precious to any who find themselves struggling in the midst of temptation. Normally we take several verses at a time. But the Christology that we encounter in verse 18 is is worthy of special treatment. We don't want to blur by this. We don't want to blast over it. We don't want to miss what's taking place. Because this verse raises questions concerning the very nature of Jesus himself. You rightly understand his nature, then you gain tremendous help from him. There are two points in our outline this morning. The first is that Jesus resisted temptation as a man. This is part of why the eternal son became fully human. It was ultimately to aid strugglers, those who struggle in sin. Her first point is that Jesus resisted temptation as a man. If you look at verse 18, it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, this verse opens a little bit awkwardly, especially if you're into grammar. It's strange to put two conjunctions together. Right? It kind of sounds like a, a three-year-old trying to explain away something that they've done. And they say, well, it was for, because, and they're, they're piecing together the conjunctions. The issue is that you have two conjunctions together, for, because, and they, they apply to different phrases. If you like to write in your Bible, you could circle the four and make an arrow and connect that to the second phrase, he is able. The because goes with he himself, and the four goes with he is able. I want to read for you then how the author's argument is taking place. For he is able to help those who are being tempted. That is the main clause. The reason is because he himself has suffered when tempted. See, the author here is is teaching us that Jesus is uniquely qualified to help you in your temptation. In fact, Jesus is more qualified than any earthly priest ever was. He's more qualified than any pastor, any mentor that you might have, any friend in the Lord. He's more qualified than any author or theologian. He is supremely qualified. Why? Because, look at the text, he himself has suffered when tempted. That conjunction, because, functions causally here. He's able to do that because he suffered when he was tempted. And the other says, he himself. Why say himself? You've already said he. You've made the point. We know who it is. Well, when you add himself, you're emphasizing the significance that Jesus actually went through temptation. It didn't appear as though he went through temptation. He himself, personally, for 33 years while he was on the earth, was tempted. Truly tempted. Really tempted. Actually tempted to sin. And so Jesus, having undergone actual temptation as a man, now is qualified to serve us in our temptation. Now, you hear me say that, and immediately you encounter the dilemma. The dilemma is this. If Jesus is God and God can't sin, then how is it that Jesus was tempted? If Jesus is God and God can't sin, then how is it that Jesus was tempted. Even more to the point, James 1.13 says God cannot be tempted. And then the next thought is, if, if Jesus wasn't really tempted, then how does his faithfulness in temptation provide me any benefits in my temptation? If Jesus wasn't really truly tempted, then how does his faithfulness in temptation provide me any benefits in my temptation? Now, if you hear that question and you think, okay, that's a little bit perplexing, then you're not alone. 
You have great Reformed theologians that wrote entire volumes that struggle to answer this question consistently. It's a hard question. Yet I'm convinced that if we understand what exactly the Scripture teaches here, this is a a tremendous and glorious doctrine that will help you in temptation. The answer up front, and now I'm going to prove it from the Scriptures, is that Jesus resisted temptation as a man, and that is what qualifies him to help tempted men. Whenever you find something in Scripture... You want to just submit to it. So the writer of Hebrews says he himself has suffered when tempted. That means that he was actually tempted and he was tempted in such a way that he endured suffering in the part of the struggle. And so before we dismiss it, we must say we understand that it's true. Now we just have to figure out how is it that it can be true? What is your first instinct in answering the question? How is it that Jesus endured temptation without sinning? So imagine that we're in Sunday school, we have the four-year-olds, and we're going to tell them how it is that Jesus never sinned. And what do we typically say? Jesus never sinned because he was God. Jesus never sinned because he was God. Bruce Ware writes, the common evangelical intuition seems to be this. If the reason Christ could not sin, namely that he is God, then the reason Christ did not sin must likewise be that he is God. But the reason why Jesus did not sin and the reality that he could not sin are not the same thing. We know that God cannot sin. Isaiah 6, 3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We know that God is set apart from all of his creation and he has moral perfection. He has perfection in all of his thoughts and intentions. There's no defect or deficiency. And if God were ever to sin, he would cease to be God. It is impossible for God to sin. This is known as the doctrine of impeccability. That it's not merely that God doesn't sin, but rather that he could not sin. And so this is the the doctrine of impeccability. Stating not merely that he is sinless, but that he doesn't possess the ability to sin. So Jesus is God. We looked through Hebrews 1 and for weeks we've been looking at the fact that Jesus is in fact truly God. And we understand God cannot sin. In fact, Jesus was genuinely impeccable because in the incarnation, he was none other than the immutable and eternally holy second person of the Trinity who joined himself to human nature. So it was impossible for Jesus to sin. This wasn't simply because Jesus wasn't born with a sin nature. Adam didn't have a sin nature until he sinned, but he was still able to pull it off, believe it or not, being born without corruption. Rather, it's that Jesus as a whole person can never sin because he is God. He is impeccable. I like the way one theologian put this in attempting to describe how it is that you would take humanity and wed humanity to deity and now have a man who could never sin. Here's how he described it. An iron wire by itself can be bent and broken in a man's hand. So picture a coat hanger. Have you bent it back and forth enough times? If you're in a desperate situation that you need a coat hanger for, you break it eventually. It's able to be bent and broken. But when that wire is welded onto an iron bar, it can no longer be so bent and broken. A mere man can be overcome by temptation, but a God-man cannot. Consequently, God, while having a Christ, while having a peccable human nature in his constitution, was an impeccable person. In other words, the, the reality that he was a human, married now in one person to deity, made it impossible for him to ever sin. So, if you ask, is it possible that Jesus could have ever sinned? The answer is, no, it would have been impossible for Jesus to sin. So, how is it then that Jesus could have been truly, genuinely, actually tempted. What we find is that to be truly tempted doesn't require that you necessarily have the ability to sin. To be truly tempted does not 
require the necessity of the ability to sin. And really, throughout church history, particularly in the first several hundred years of the church, people would attempt to resolve an understanding of Jesus by by messing up this idea that He is one person in two natures. In fact, Arius, Pelagius, and other medieval nominalists taught that in principle, Jesus could have sinned. Jesus was peccable, is what they would have taught. So it wasn't that he ever sinned. They didn't teach that he did sin, but they taught that it was possible that he sinned. And they would do this in some way by by changing the person of Christ from what is taught in Scripture. Just a few of these that you've probably heard over the years. There was docetism. This was the belief that the humanity of Jesus was not genuine, but merely seemed to be human. That's one way of resolving it. You say that Jesus kind of seemed to be a human. He wasn't a true human. Therefore, his temptation wasn't a true human uh, temptation. It just merely appeared to be temptation. It wasn't legitimate. Arianism. Arianism taught that Jesus is of a similar substance as God. Not the same substance. And so, in this regard, it was uh, Jesus being able then, uh, because he wasn't uh, truly impeccable as God, he would have had the ability to have at some point sinned. And although he obeyed, there was always that possibility. And that's how it would have been a true temptation. Nestorianism gets around this dilemma by saying that Jesus not only possessed two natures, but he was in fact two people. So in that scenario, the human Jesus would have been capable of sin. The divine Jesus would not have been able to sin. And you kind of resolve the tension in the text. You wonder, say, man, that seems kind of challenging to to parse out. How is it that we get it? Well, the scriptures present Jesus as one person with two natures. We kind of take this for granted because it was hammered out at church councils over the course of hundreds of years. The Nicene Council in 325 defended the deity of Christ and opposed Arianism. The Council of Constantinople, where the church gathered together the first time in Constantinople to clarify these doctrines, defended the deity of Christ, opposed Arianism and Apollinarianism. The Council of Ephesus in 431 defended the two natures of Christ and opposed Nestorianism. Chalcedon in 451 defended the two natures of Christ, opposed Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, and Eutychianism. Constantinople II in 553 defended the two natures of Christ, opposed Eutychianism and Monophysitism. Constantinople III in 680 and 681 defended the two natures of Christ and opposed Monophyletism. My friends, when you consider the challenging reality of understanding the doctrine of Jesus Christ, uh, it is something that has been wrestled with by the church. And it took many years to come to a clear Christology and to defend the truth about Christ and his person and clarify exactly what he is and who he is and what he is not and who he is not. It'd be an errant view of Christ to say that in any way he could have sinned. And so we affirm that Jesus was not able to sin. But to say that Jesus obeyed because he was unable to sin also misrepresents the biblical data. See, when Jesus came together, he came together in one person. This is known as the hypostatic union. Perhaps you've heard that term. The hypostatic union. This is where the divine nature and the human nature come together in one person without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. This union maintains Christ's deity utterly undiminished. So in uniting to human flesh, there was nothing diminished about the deity of Christ and his person. And nothing about his essential humanity was taken away or diminished by his deity. In other words, the attributes of one nature are never attributed to the other, and the attributes of both natures are properly attributed to his person. And so it's in this way that we could say an impeccable Christ, a Christ who could never sin, was in his humanity genuinely tempted. That means when Jesus faced temptation, 
He faced it like you and I. The only difference was his nature was not corrupt or fallen, but it was a human nature nonetheless. And so this one person with two natures, this hypostatic union, is who Christ will be now forever. When he took on flesh, that was the new normal for all of eternity. He is now and forever the God-man. So how is it that he was tempted? Well, I want to read to you a, a way of describing this, which I think is quite helpful to understand the reality between Jesus obeying as a man and the fact that he could have never disobeyed as the God-man. Quote, to understand better the distinction here, invoke between why something could not occur and why it did not occur, consider the following. A swimmer who wants to attempt breaking the world's record for the longest continuous swim becomes worried that in attempting to break the world record, his muscles may cramp severely and he could then drown. So the swimmer consults with friends and they decide to arrange for a boat to follow along behind the swimmer 20 or 30 feet back, close enough to pick him up should a serious problem arise, but far enough away so as not to interfere with the attempted historic swim itself. On the appointed day, the swimmer dives in and begins his attempt at breaking the world record. As he swims, the boat follows along comfortably behind, ready to pick him up if needed. But no help is needed. With determination and resolve, the swimmer relentlessly swims and swims and swims. And in due time, he succeeds in breaking the world record. Now consider two questions. First, why is it that this record-breaking event, the swimmer could not have drowned? Well, the answer is that the boat was there all the while. Of course he couldn't have drowned. He had friends 20 or 30 feet behind him that could have easily grabbed him out and pulled him to safety before he drowned. But the second question is, why is it that the swimmer did not drown? The answer is that he kept swimming. Notice the answer to the second question has nothing at all to do with the boat. In fact, if you gave the answer of the boat to question two, why it is that the swimmer didn't drown, the swimmer would be both astonished and dismayed. It's simply not true that the swimmer did not drown because the boat was there. The boat quite literally had absolutely nothing to do with why the swimmer did not drown. Furthermore, and get this, although the swimmer knew full well that he could not drown due to the boats following along behind him, that knowledge had nothing to do with why he did not drown. Since he also knew that if he ever relied on the boat, his mission breaking the world record would be forfeited. So although he knew that he could only accomplish his goal by swimming as if there were no boat there at all. My friends, Jesus did not face temptation in his deity. It wasn't his divine nature. He didn't, he didn't reach back and draw on his divine nature to weather temptation. Rather, he weathered temptation in his humanity. And so the fact that he could have never sinned is not the same answer as to why it is that in fact he never sinned. Well, perhaps you think, okay, I see the text. I see that Jesus himself has suffered when tempted. I believe that Jesus was tempted. But here's the deal. Jesus' temptation is not as difficult as the temptation that I face because Jesus didn't have a sin nature. He didn't have the internal compulsion to sin. He, he wasn't a son of Adam. He never dealt with that. He never had internal corruption. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was conceived in sinless perfection. I would say you misunderstand then the nature of temptation. See, the truth of the matter is, it is easier to keep sinning than to battle sin. It's easier to give in to a temptation than to continually fight against it. I mean, isn't that true that sometimes in your temptation with sin, you choose to sin just so you can stop battling the temptation to sin? Because that's easier. One theologian puts it this way, because Jesus never sinned when tempted, this means that he fought every temptation fully to the end. He never not once gave in to that delicious and enticing longing simply to end the struggle by yielding to the temptation. 
Rather, he fought and fought and fought in every temptation, every time, always coming out on the other side victorious. Think about it. If, if you're tempted and at the first moment you're tempted, you immediately cave, you never even got to experience what it's like to be tempted tomorrow and tempted further and with greater attacks from Satan because you resisted so, so poorly, so quickly you gave in. In fact, for Jesus, his temptation would have increased. The writer of Hebrews, in a profound reality, it's challenging to understand, is going to say that Jesus actually learned obedience as a son. What does that mean? It means that as he would begin to trust God in temptation, the next temptation was greater. And the next temptation was greater, culminating in the cross, which would have been the greatest temptation that he had ever faced to abandon the Father's plan. So when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, becoming fully human to aid strugglers, you must understand that when he resisted temptation and when he obeyed it, he obeyed it as a man. He resisted temptation as a man. And so the authors point to believers who get discouraged in our temptation. We're going to find over and over in Hebrews that the believers are tempted to shrink back in their sin and pull away from Christ. That he now, Jesus, comes and gives help to tempted men. He is able to help those who are being tempted. You understand that Jesus, when he was tempted, suffered, and this enables him to now render assistance to us. He's uniquely qualified to come to your aid, specifically because he's already gone where you've gone, and he's already passed the test. Look at the passage. Who is it that he is able to help? It's those who are being tempted. That pretty much applies to everyone in the room today. To those who are being tempted. Not to those who used to be tempted at one point. Ongoingly, presently, day by day, it's a present active uh, indicative verb. Those who are being tempted right now. If you're breathing, then you are still subject to temptation. See, the temptation to sin is not part of the old life prior to coming to Christ. In fact, in many ways, you just give in to sin prior to coming to Christ. It's at the point of regeneration that you actually begin to do battle with the flesh by the power of the Spirit. And now temptation takes on a whole new meaning. You're tempted to sin by the devil and his lies. You're tempted by your own desires that James says entice you and drag you away. And as much as you might wish the battle with the flesh to be easier, as much as you might like to mature beyond temptation, temptation is the way of life until glory. My friends, you never mature beyond temptation. Is that not relieving in some way? I think sometimes we, we, we hope, okay, if I can just get to this certain point, then I will finally have the relief of being free of temptation. Yes, it's called glory. You will get there, just not as soon as you think. My friends, temptation is a way of life. You never mature beyond it. You will be tempted daily to sin. I am tempted daily to sin. The person sitting on your right is tempted daily to sin. The person on your left is tempted daily to sin. I know that you're tired of temptation. I am too. Sometimes we look at those who are mature in the faith and we think that they must have some secret to sanctification, some secret cheat code that they have learned to now avoid actually facing temptation. My friends, there are no tips or tricks to work the system. No shortcuts that make obedience easier. Our flesh is so prone to gimmicks in the area of sanctification and false promises and false hopes. It's kind of the, the infomersion, infomercial version of sanctification. I used to be this, then I got this, now I'm this, and you can easily obey too. Many deceitful teachings come promising an easier method to dealing with temptation that doesn't necessitate actually facing it and dealing with it. Just think of a few of these. You people that teach that somehow we should have emotions that just carry us into obedience. 
that if we could just think the right thoughts, we'd be caught up into loftiness and we would be carried along by our emotions into the joy of obedience. There are those who teach that there could be a painless progress in the faith. That obedience isn't something that will actually be difficult for you or for your flesh. There are those who would teach obedience without striving. Uh, That in fact, it's something that you let the Spirit just take over and essentially do for you and obey through you. That there's not actually the onus of facing temptation in the flesh. There are teachings that would ignore mortification altogether. The idea of putting to death the flesh. That that somehow that's a a gentle or a, a pleasant or attractive process. Just like... You know, putting a a sleeping baby down to sleep that you just kind of nurse the flesh back to sleep. When Paul says, put to death, mortify. There are those that would teach that if you're captivated by the glories of eternity, that, that temptation would lose its allure and merely melt away. Those that would teach that meditating on our justification produces such gratitude that you would no longer face temptation. My friends, that is not how the Scripture presents temptation or obedience. It says that Christ suffered when He was tempted. It doesn't say that He endured suffering merely by ecstasy and joy all of the time. Rather, He actually suffered with the struggle that we are beset with. He wasn't in need like we are. Nevertheless, it was still a test. When we look at how the scripture presents temptation, we find words like abstain, mortify, put off, crucify, deny, flee, run. And so when you face temptation, the comfort of Jesus is that we can learn from him in the way that he faced temptation. See, if Jesus faced temptation... And all he did was said, I'm God and in my divine nature, I don't have to face temptation. That's not of any help to us. I can't appropriate that. But if Jesus the man obeyed in dependence upon the Spirit with a mind saturated in truth, entrusting himself to the Father, now all of a sudden you and I can benefit from that example. See, when Jesus faces Satan's temptation in the wilderness. When he faces temptation in the garden of Gethsemane, he's not caught up there. We don't see him caught up in emotional ecstasy as he contemplates the Father's glory and bypasses the very real struggle and difficulty of temptation. The drops of blood coming out of his face while he prayed in the garden and his words of pain indicate for us the very nature and difficulty of facing an unwanted circumstance and now trusting the Father through it. My friends, in temptation, the struggle is real and anyone who minimizes the reality of temptation is lying to you. Jesus exercised faith and obedience. He believed the Father in the moment. In fact, this is what Peter would say in 1 Peter 2 when he said, Jesus suffered leaving an example for you and the example he left for you, according to verse 23, is one who continually entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Continually. Day after day after day, temptation after temptation after temptation. My friend, Jesus endured temptation and faced it in his humanity. That one divine person who could have never sinned and yet faced actual temptation as a man. He looked to the Father by faith. And with all of that in mind now, hear again the familiar words of 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. But God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now let's just camp out here for a minute and think about the implications of how this unmasks the lies that we're prone to believe about temptation. We already dealt with this, but the idea that I could somehow reach a spiritual state of being temptation-free, desiring it in my heart, 
having an expectation or a hope for it, thinking that then I would finally be happier if I was temptation-free. It's not possible. Just stop it. Stop pining for it. Stop thinking that it could ever happen. We're promised in 1 Corinthians 10.13 not the removal of temptation, but the ability to walk through the temptation without giving into it by depending upon the faithfulness of God. So in fact, you are promised that you will face temptation. Expect it. Next would be to simply uh, minimize the reality of it. So this comes out in expressions like, well, you know, we're all just sinners anyway, or nobody's perfect. Kind of a a way of, of getting myself off the hook from actually facing the temptation to deal with it. It's a minimizing and a hedging of one's reputation. Right here, the text says that temptation will come to you. 1 Corinthians 10.13 cuts against our desire for the battle to be easier. Have you ever thought that? Of course you have. We all do. I just, I want to obey the Lord. I want to honor Christ. I just want it to be easier than it actually is. Text says it'll not be beyond your ability. One of the excuses for failure in the Christian life is that the temptation was just too great. Temptation was just too much. I just couldn't handle it. It's just like this invisible magnet and I'm the iron and I just got drawn to it. I couldn't help myself. No, it it says actually that that there will not be a temptation. You can bank on it, a promise of God that that will overtake you that would be too great for you to handle if you're depending upon God's resources. See, whenever you sin as a believer, you're choosing to disregard the resources God has provided. It's because it's what you want to do. It's what I want to do. We are preferring sin in the moment, but it's not because we're actually unable to resist temptation. It's because in that particular moment, we don't want to. Issue is very often we kind of like temptation because we kind of want to sin. And if we're close enough to temptation that we might get sucked into it, then we can sin and then we'll just blame the fact that the temptation was too difficult. Another lie that this text cuts against is the idea that you can manage temptation. Maybe I can just kind of go near the island. Maybe I'll put the beeswax in. I'll just leave it out a little bit. I'll just hear a little bit of the song and then and then I'll just be able to plug my ear again. So I'll, I'll be able to handle it. Friends, Paul told Timothy to flee youthful lusts. See, when you think of the faithfulness of God in temptation, if you were to to picture it almost like a, a hallway with doors getting smaller and smaller and smaller. The, the easiest way to begin to deal with temptation is actually to trust the Lord and flee from it early on. That's when the door is the biggest. And as you continue to let those lusts entice your heart, as you continue into temptation, the way of escape gets more and more challenging. Last lie that this text cuts against is imagining that somehow your struggle is harder than other people's. You're just so prone to this one. To begin to think that your particular battle with sin and sanctification is somehow unique to you. You're in a different category. Other people don't understand it. My friends, this is a tactic of Satan to have you in a rut and a way of thinking that will, will cut you off from the grace of God. If you think your temptation is unique, then you're now cut off from the resources that Christ provided everyone else because you're in a different category. It's very subtle and yet oftentimes we do it. See, whatever you particularly struggle with in terms of temptation, this truth applies to you. It's common to man in the sense that uh, even if you were to think of it this way, Jesus didn't actually face temptation in all of the ways that we do. Think of all the ways that we are tempted to respond poorly to our sinful decisions. Jesus would have never known that because he never sinned once. He could have never responded poorly to sinning. Rather, whatever your sin is, the temptation to abandon the promise of God is common. Whether you suffer with debilitating fears, sexual sin and temptation, homosexuality, pornography, eating disorders, bitterness and revenge, secretly hiding sin, Regardless of your upbringing, regardless of what you've done since, regardless of who you've been with, if you are a human, these issues are common to man. And your Savior knows what it's like to be tempted because he actually suffered when he was tempted. 
My friends, how precious is this verse? He is able to help those who are being tempted. This word for help is used in the Greek language to refer to doctors. The place you would go when, when you have a need. The idea is that it's, it's to render assistance and help. We know that God is our helper. Psalm 118 verse 6. He provides help in our time of need. Hebrews 4.16. He is the one to whom we look for aid. And yet Jesus here is, is being helped for to the church to say for all who struggle with temptation, Jesus is here to help you. How is it that Jesus helps us in our temptation? Well, the New Testament provides a long list of things that he has done for us in the gospel. Regeneration. Divine power. Guaranteeing our victory and completing the work that he started. Equipping us with all the weaponry that we need. Ephesians 6. Breaking the back of Satan's power and dominion in our lives. Precious promises. But here in this text, him coming to our aid is, is not all of those theological realities that took place at conversion, which do play into this. Here it's specifically relating to the matter of temptation. See, Jesus comes to us in our temptation as a high priest to minister to us and to encourage us when we face temptation. How is it that he encourages us? Well, he actually faced temptation. And he did it successfully with the same tools that you and I have at our disposal. He did it dependent upon the Spirit, and he did it dependent upon the truth. You and I need someone to show us how to face temptation in God's resources. It's like one of the guys from an accountability group I was a part of as a young man, and I remember caught us all off guard. We were sitting there. He showed up late and we had our you know, little Starbucks coffees and he came in and he kind of was irritated and he put his Bible down and he said, guys, I'm done with this group. He said, none of us are having victory. And so every week we come here and we sit around, we talk about how much we fail all the time and I'm sick of wasting my time with you guys. I'm going to go find someone who can actually help us. It was a good word. <laughs> I think maybe he stayed to share a cup of coffee that day, but, but that was the message that we needed to hear. 18 months in our accountability group and nobody's getting any godlier. We needed someone to help us. I mean, you think of the, 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 the folly of, of how we would go and try and learn from someone who hasn't done something before. Imagine showing up at a driver's ed class and you see the instructor, and the instructor gets dropped off, and you say, oh, that's interesting, ride sharing. No, I just haven't gotten my license yet. That's kind of weird. Yeah, I can't seem to pass that test. I mean, it's crazy. You got to get 70%. Can you believe that? All right, well, let's get started with the driver's ed class today. You're thinking, and I'm in the wrong place. So you got to learn from someone who's actually passed the test. And so Jesus comes to our aid in facing temptation to show us the truth of 1 Corinthians 10.13, that, that when we sin, we're not to blame the difficulty of the temptation, but rather look back to the resources that God supplies and trust Him in our sanctification. My friends, here's how I want you to think about His help. Take whatever areas right now you see in your life that are spiritually weak, whatever areas you see that temptation seems too great, Whatever area you would say, the battle is too hard and I'm discouraged because I have a thousand failures and counting. And be reminded that by the power of the Spirit, you can actually obey in that area that you don't have to give in to temptation. Is that not thrilling? I mean, so often in sin, I think, man, I'm just so used to sinning in an area, I almost begin to forget that I don't actually have to sin in that area. That I've been given the rich resources in Christ with the power of the Spirit to actually walk in newness of life. Jesus knows the temptation. He knows what it means to suffer. Jesus was a hormonal teenager once and a single man who always possessed his body in sanctification and honor and self-control. He was truly a know-it-all as a little kid. He had divine wisdom in his deity 
And he had to grow up submitting to parents who had, had uh, it was their first kid. So they were making the maximum number of mistakes in parenting on Jesus. And he had to, with a happy heart, submit to their, at times, incompetent parenting. Start thinking about his life. I'm sure that when he was growing up and his siblings didn't accept him as one of them, there would have been a temptation to bitterness. Probably tempted not to wash Jesus' feet and serve him in the upper room, knowing what Judas was about to do. Clearly, he was tempted to push the ejector button on the whole earthly mission before the cross. That was the main driving factor that Satan was after in Matthew chapter 4 when he leads Jesus out in the wilderness is to say, why don't you just do it your own way rather than trust the Father? And yet Jesus never once gave in, not relying upon his deity, but in his humanity with the same resources that you and I have now in him. My friends, don't forget the riches that you have in Jesus Christ. Remind yourself of the precious promise of Galatians 5.16. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When you begin to think that temptation is too great and you just have to keep sinning, the truth is that you don't. Hear what the scripture says and doesn't say. It doesn't say you can stop sinning. You and I live in the shadow and the echo of the old man. The body of flesh must be done away with. You're beset by moral weakness. But as a believer, you are not obligated to sin any longer. You're not under the mastery of sin. And the very same spirit that was sent by Christ to benefit his people now ministers to us in his absence. Whatever temptations you face, take courage and comfort knowing that Jesus too suffered temptation and he learned obedience through increasingly depending upon the spirit. Now he's willing and able to come to your aid. And obviously our hope in all of that is that in all of that temptation, he never gave into it for a second. And before God, that is now our track record if you're in Christ. Perfect obedience in every temptation. Will you pray with me? Lord, what an incomprehensible reality. We admit that it stretches us to think in these terms. And yet what a gift to, to us. Or that because that, that group, that band of believers uh, were tempted to depart from Christ in Hebrews, uh, we get the benefit of having uh, the humanity of our Lord displayed in ways that are particular and clear and benefit our souls. Lord, I pray that we would not face temptation according to our own fleshly and natural ways of thinking, but Lord, we'd think about it with a renewed mind and see these things as you portray them. We ask this by your power, by the same spirit that empowered the Lord Jesus Christ and now indwells all who belong to him. Amen.